This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the Navy should look back 40 years to strategize its future fleet. Representative and retired Navy officer Elaine Luria explains. $80 million coming to boost diversity in the health IT workforce. Two HHS leaders explain where that money will go. And the number one story of the week, a tough job ahead for the new leader of the Office of Personnel Management. Two management veterans tell you what she's up against. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The new Navy shipbuilding plan plots out a fleet that could wind up anywhere from 320 to more than 500 ships. The Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Michael Gilday, said this week, though, the Navy can only afford a 300-ship fleet with the budget it has now. But the Navy should go back to the 80s to strategize its future fleet, according to Congresswoman Elaine Luria. She's vice chair of the House Armed Services Committee and a retired Navy surface warfare officer. She's writing about naval fleet strategy in War on the Rocks. Madam Vice Chair, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. You write in this piece, I've sought to determine the Navy's current global maritime strategy. What I've discovered is that it does not exist. That sounds like a tremendous problem, Madam Vice Chair. Well, you know, as a lawmaker um, and as one who has to make these tough decisions um, on how we spend taxpayer dollars to defend our nation, I feel that you know the Navy has a goal. They have a goal of 355 ships. That includes 11 aircraft carriers. But truly, there isn't a strategy where they can come explain to Congress, to the American people, the importance of our Navy, the importance of forward presence overseas, the um, emerging and urgent threat um, that we need to respond to uh, relative to Chinese activities in the Western Pacific, the South China Sea. And I think the, it's time uh, to go back uh, to, to like uh, Secretary Lehman did under the Reagan administration and really have a global strategy um, that the administration, that Congress, that the American people are behind um, to build the Navy that our nation needs. What was most striking to me about the, the explanation that you gave in this piece about what happened in the 1980s under Secretary Lehman was this. Um, the, the strategy document, the 80s maritime strategy, developed in just three weeks using briefing slides and speaking notes. It, doesn't, it takes a lot longer than that to develop anything in the Pentagon now, it seems. Am I reading it wrong? It is surprising looking back on that history and actually speaking to the authors uh, of that strategy recently to understand you know, how quickly they were able to put the pieces together. But the Soviet Union was a threat that we could quantify. And we knew that we needed forces in the North Atlantic, in the Mediterranean, in the Western Pacific. And putting that all together, how many carrier strike groups would that be? How many ships would that be? And really putting the entire industrial base um, behind building those ships. And we got pretty darn close, 597, uh, before the Cold War came to an end. Is it reasonable to substitute China today for the Soviet Union then? Because you ask in this piece, uh, or you write, U.S. maritime leaders need to answer the question, how would the U.S. Navy deter or defeat Chinese naval aggression? They're certainly not shy about demonstrating their new naval capabilities. 
I certainly think that China is the pacing threat. I certainly think that there would be other malign actors um, who would respond uh, in this scenario. And we look at our national defense strategy. It says defeat in one theater, deter elsewhere. I don't think we've clearly defined that deter elsewhere. Um, and you know, the importance of the freedom of the seas for our trade, for our commerce, for our economy, and really to protect American values cannot be overstated. And just look at what happened this week recently with Russia's claimed interactions with the British Navy um, in waters near Crimea. Um, this is only going to escalate in, in various areas of the world, including the Arctic as well, where I have a lot of concerns. You write about how uh, your graduation from the Naval Academy in 1997, 20-year Navy career, and you point out that the Zumwalt and Ford class uh, ships ha start the program started before you graduated from the academy ma'am and neither one of them has deployed you describe this as a lost generation how do we make that up given that we're we are where we are we can't change the past how do we make up that time ma'am well i think we need to build uh, the ships that we can build today um, if we look at this budget proposal, it actually builds one less destroyer. And the Arleigh Burke class destroyer is a ship that we've able to, been able to build over decades reliably on time on budget for the most part. And so the idea that we'd be cutting the possibility of a ship that we have the capacity to build this year. And then, you know, the budget also proposes decommissioning multiple cruisers. Um, the Aegis cruisers, the Ticonderoga class cruisers are aging. Um, they need modernizations, which costs money. But the cost of that, that cost of modernization is significantly less than building another ship. And we don't even have the capacity to build that ship. So we need to build more. We need to stop decommissioning ships faster than we can build new ones. And we also need to look in depth that how we can um, maintain and deploy our ships as efficiently as possible. So I, I think there are ways to effectively increase the size of the Navy by getting more out of the fleet that we have. Um, if we can put investments in the back end in maintenance and training and, and other things that I think can provide a more efficient fleet in the way we deploy it. How much of the focus should be on quantity and how much should be on capabilities in determining exactly what has to happen in those theaters of operation that you referenced earlier, ma'am? Well, I think presence matters. We have to be in their backyard. Um, I would applaud both the former and current administration for continuing the pressure of freedom of navigation operations in the area. That's U.S. vessels uh, going through international waters that are improperly claimed by other nations. Um, but we have to keep the pressure on um, as far as presence. So numbers do matter. And the current budget, which you know has a goal of divesting of ships platforms that we have today that they call legacy platforms in order to invest in the future, is it's really short-sighted because today we need that capability. And the Trump administration put out Battle Force 2045, which was a future plan for the Navy decades out, um, which of course we have to plan for the future, but we cannot overlook today, um, both the incoming and outgoing commanders of the US uh, Pacific Command, Admirals Davidson and Aquilino came before the Senate and said, you know, within six years, uh, within this window, China could invade Taiwan. And this year, the Chief of Naval Operations, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, just reconfirmed that in our House Armed Services hearings. And you know, we have to have that sense of urgency. And that sense of urgency means we need to build what we can today. We need to keep what we have today. Um, and we need to keep up that presence uh, around the world where it matters. Madam Vice Chair, thank you very much for joining me today. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. Coming next, the Biden administration's $80 million bet on health IT. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the diversity building blocks for the workforce of the future. You're watching 7 News.
Welcome back. The Department of Health and Human Services will spend $80 million on public health IT people. The funding initiative focuses on the diversity of the health IT workforce. Lisa Lewis is Deputy National Coordinator for Operations and Chief Operating Officer, the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. Elise Sweeney Anthony is Executive Director for the Office of Policy at the Department of Health and Human Services. Ladies, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Lisa, I start with you. This is the Public Health Informatics and Technology Workforce Development Program. What do you want to develop through this program, Lisa? We are looking to strengthen the public health informatics and technology workforce that is available across the nation. We are working to train 4,000 new public health workers, specifically in informatics and technology. Elise, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. What, do, what will those people do and what, uh, where are you going to try to find them? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So the Public Health Informatics and Technology Workforce Development Program, or FIT, is really focused on identifying uh, workforce components that are focused on those two fields, informatics and uh, technology. Public health workers are critically important, as we know, to our landscape. It's critically important to our public health infrastructure and critically important to the overall health of the nation. So what we're focused on is identifying uh, a diverse workforce located um, primarily looking at uh, minority serving institutions to form and engage in consortiums. If they're not um, leading the consortium, that they are part of a consortium that's applying for these, um, these workforce opportunities. They would essentially be tr providing training certificate or degree level programs focused on those two fields, public health informatics and public health technology, really from a diverse perspective, thereby increasing the diversity of the field overall. Uh, Lisa, how are you going to go about identifying these people and who are going to be the stakeholders that help you identify the candidates? So we have been working across the Department of Health and Human Services for several years to develop strong relationships with the minority serving institutions. And so, as Elise said, we are taking a consortia approach to this program. We are asking minority serving institutions to help us in this area to identify the candidates. We are asking them to be the leads of the consortia. And if they are not the lead and a non-minority serving institution is the lead, that a minority serving institution is part of that consortium. And we also ask that they work with representatives from the public health agencies, either state, county, or local, and with community organizations to engage in finding these candidates and ensuring we meet our goal to train 4,000 public health workers in informatics and technology. Lisa, you stole my question, which is what's the volume like here? So I'll ask you, Lise, uh, how will you measure your success in this program? Is it just the 4,000, or are there other ways that you're going to evaluate as the program proceeds that you're achieving what you want to achieve? Yeah, what we're looking at is a program that really is going to meet the needs of, um, of the public health workforce overall. What are the health IT needs that are needed? So some of the requirements and elements of the program focus just on that. We focus specifically on identifying a diverse workforce, on identifying programs that are going to bring in um, communities, um, bring in um, whether it's clinics on the ground or organizations that are working on health disparities, as well as local, state, tribal um, um, 
um, in, uh, companies or not just companies, but also thinking about those entities, those public health agencies across the landscape from a local level. Is there engagement? Is there engagement on public health um, public health infrastructure? Is there engagement on what is needed from informatics and the technology perspective? I mean, we know from COVID-19 that there's a demonstrated need and importance that is that is needed regarding data to response efforts. Better data, including data regarding race and ethnicity, really helps in terms of response and, it, and identifying where health disparities may exist and where public health resources um, should be placed as well. So the goal of the program is really going to build out an infrastructure um, for training training around those two fields of informatics and technology that will focus on those elements. We're also looking at sustainability over time. We want to make sure that after the four-year period of this cooperative agreement, where these training programs are established, that there is also a sustainability factor so that these programs can continue and continue to provide workforce professionals for years to come. Lisa, the way I read this, these 4,000 people, once you identify and train them up, will go into the general public sector health IT workforce. Will there be an opportunity for you to try to recruit them specifically into HHS or other government organizations? Yes, we are always looking for the best and the brightest. Uh, our team at ONC is absolutely amazing. And we compete with uh, private sector as well as state and local gov government for the best and the brightest informaticists and technologists. So we uh, have a program the Pathways to Public Service program that we have been running for several years, along with our minority serving institutions to do just that, recruit the best and the brightest from these institutions to increase diversity, not just in uh, other parts of government, but also within HHS itself. Lisa and Elise, congratulations on getting this underway. Thank you very much for joining me to talk about it. Thank Our you. Pleasure. Thank you. Up next, a new shot to repair the federal workforce. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the multi-year fix that's getting a fresh start and a fresh leader. You're watching 7 News. Welcome back. Now, the number one story of the week. The Office of Personnel Management has a leader for the first time in nearly a year. One of the first jobs for Kieran Ahuja will be to execute the Biden administration's new multi-year workforce strategy. Janice Lachance is executive vice president at the American Geophysical Union. She's former director of the Office of Personnel Management. Rafael Boris is president and CEO of the Homeland Security and Defense Business Council. He's former undersecretary for management at the Department of Homeland Security. Welcome to both of you. Janice, I imagine as you saw Kieran swear in this week, you had memories of your swear in. What's she up against as she takes over at OPM, given the landscape that exists today for the federal workforce? Uh, she has a number of challenges, but I prefer to think about them as opportunities. She's going to get the chance to really make some advances that a lot of us have been looking for for the last almost 20 years. First of all, the agency needs to be rebuilt. It needs to reclaim its leadership among the federal agency's HR offices. Um, the prior administration was trying to dismantle it. That didn't work out. Now it's time to 
really think about OPM's role, reassert it, reaffirm it, and move forward. But there's so many challenges that are giving HR professionals across government an opportunity to rethink how work is done, rethink where work is done, how to keep federal employees safe and secure, and how to give them the talent they need to get the work done on all of these important issues we're wrestling with as a nation. And then finally, how do we bring in and keep the kind of talent we need to really tackle the future and do it easily, do it smoothly, figure out new ways, rethink these systems, and really start from scratch to rebuild an HR structure that is ready for the 2020s, right? This decade has already been so dramatically different. How do we carry this forward and make it something special, something different? And Karen's the perfect person to do that. Raphael, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. What do leaders uh, at agencies like your former agency need from a rebuilt OPM, as Janice describes it? Well, you know, she described it well. Uh, I would say two things. One is, uh, uh, you know, set your goals uh, appropriately. Uh, you've got now a little less than four years uh, to to get this business done. You're not going to get everything done. So, you know, they've set out a pretty ambitious agenda, and they're going to be need to be very strategic about how they use the next uh, uh, several years uh, to be able to put OPM back in its proper place. Uh, the second thing is, what is the proper place? Uh, you know, many of the agencies, uh, uh, you know, have had uh, sort of a schizophrenic relationship with OPM over the last several years. And I think it's important uh, for OPM to focus on what is its appropriate corporate role. Uh, really, what are the things that should be done at OPM and what are the things that uh, the agencies need to do? Uh, and I think it's, uh, it's important to sort that out, uh, you know, kind of for once and for all, you know, figure out, uh, you know, what are the right things that OPM needs to be doing, and more important, get them out of the business to the things that are better left to the agencies. Janice, the next Gov story about this uh, workforce initiative that the administration is undertaking says that it will be jointly managed by OMB and the Office of Personnel Management. What ensures a smooth working relationship between those two organizations? In my view, it all comes down to a commitment to the goals. Uh, and I think both OMB and OPM want the same thing. I think that they can work well together. Um, let's take away all of these very traditional competitive issues between the two agencies and let's focus on the goal. As my colleague said, this is about the goals. And I think that this sort of whole government approach to HR and really thinking it through in a way that is going to bring the right talent to the federal workforce and maintain and keep the right talent uh, is critical. And let's have as many people working on this together. I do think they're going to have a challenge to make sure that all of the departments and agencies across government take this seriously, that they just don't pay lip service to it. So that leadership from OPM, which is the government-wide, enterprise-wide HR operation office policymaker for the entire government, plus what the, the status that OMB can bring to it. 
I think can be a winning combination to really break through to some of these issues. Raphael, you posed a rhetorical question about what OPM's corporate role should be across the enterprise of the government. What's the answer to that rhetorical question from the perspective of somebody who's a, man, a top manager, not necessarily an HR manager at an agency like DHS? Well, you know, I'm greatly influenced from my time in the private sector. Uh, when I worked in a large publicly traded company, uh, it was really clear uh, in terms of what services uh, and support and guidance we got from the corporate and what flexibility we had uh, as, uh, as uh, division managers or uh, P&L leads uh, to run our business. And I, quite frankly, I thought it was a very healthy relationship. I knew when and what I needed to reach out to corporate for. And I think that's, that's what I want to see here uh, in this discussion. And, and you know, this balance, figuring out the roles and responsibilities between OMB and OPM, uh, uh, you know, exactly what are the functions of uh, OMB in this conversation, uh, uh, that sorting out is going to have to be really clear so that we don't get mixed messages at the agencies. You know, oftentimes the, you know, funding decisions dominate oftentimes the, uh, uh, the movement across the federal agencies. So if OMB plays a very strong role and ties certain initiatives to funding, and it's not in sync with what we're hearing from OMB, uh, uh, that's going to just cause a lot of agencies to think about, you know, how do they get things done by themselves? And that's not a good thing. You want OM OPM uh, to uh, strongly set some guidance, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, clear the tracks uh, so that we can move the barriers out of the way and allow the agencies the flexibility to conduct their business, uh, you know, pursuant to those guidelines and those standards that are set by OPM. Raphael Boris, Janice Lachance, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you back on the program. Great to be thanks here. Thanks for having me. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv, and you get a preview and a recap of every show when you sign up for our daily newsletters. You just enter your email in the red box on the website. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity 
to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA has got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA has been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want, here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.